three, two, one. Thanks for joining us here on Kentucky Caliber. I just wanted to follow up today on a couple of things that uh, I discussed yesterday on the Jack Patty Show. And thank you again to Mr. Jack Patty for inviting me to be a guest on his show there in Lexington yesterday morning. Had a great time. Appreciate all the questions from folks who called in or texted to ask about the situation in Ukraine. And today I just wanted to follow up on some of the threads that were raised yesterday. But due to time limitations, we, didn't be, we weren't able to get into those in any more detail uh, one of those things I wanted to talk about is the the actual situation on the ground in Ukraine. Yesterday, uh, Russia's President Vladimir Putin said that there are no conscripts currently engaged in combat, that all of the, uh, the what he calls the special operation in Ukraine is being done by uh, professional soldiers. Uh, and just to clarify for folks who may not know, the Russian military is con consists of roughly somewhere around one-third uh, folks con conscripts, what we would call draftees, and the other two-thirds are volunteers, or, or they voluntarily signed into a contract with the Russian government. Now, that, that's very similar, by the way, to uh, the contract part of it anyway, is, is similar to how things are done here in the United States. When folks enlist in the military, they, they assign a contract with the government. So it would not be inaccurate to refer to folks who have enlisted as, as contractors as well, because that's that's what they did. They signed either a four-year or a six-year, or in some cases a two-year enlistment contract with the United States government. So Russia also has uh, young people who want to serve in the military who voluntarily do so and enter into a contract of service uh, with the Russian government. But they also have uh, conscripts, conscription meaning just uh, folks that were drafted. So according to, to Russia's president, there are no conscripts being used um, in the situation in Ukraine. The way he characterized the operation is, is still pretty interesting, and he seemed to be going to great lengths to reassure the Russian public that the professional soldiers are handling the fighting, that, that folks who have relatives or loved ones who are conscripts are not in any danger, and he sounded like he, he felt like he was confident that the situation will be resolved pretty soon. Well, if you look at what's actually going on on the ground in Ukraine, it's difficult to square his assessment with the ground truth as it appears uh, today um, with that assessment. It doesn't look like there's going to be any, any kind of resolution anytime soon because the Russian forces so far have had more success in taking and holding territory closer to Russia's own borders. And what that suggests is that the further they move into the hinterland of Ukraine, which, by the way, is about the size of Texas, the further they move into the hinterland of Ukraine, the less effective their combat forces become. Now, that could be due to a number of reasons. There could be supply chain issues. There have been reports that that is the case. They're not all confirmed. It's very difficult to assess with any 100% certainty whether or not there really are uh, supply chain difficulties. It does look that way. And as I mentioned yesterday, the Ukrainian military has used a, a tactical plan to target fuel trucks uh, with Russian ground forces. And remember, this is a mechanized invasion. There are three, three sides to it. There was Russian forces from the north in Belarus, the south, they came up from Crimea, 
And to the east from the what is the Donbass region in Ukraine, Russian forces moved along their highways there in armored personnel carriers, tanks, other trucks and vehicles, along with uh, accompanying jets and uh, helicopters above. And, and in some cases in the south, there were uh, maritime forces as well. Just not very many, but there were some. So it's a mechanized invasion, uh, a mechanized invasion force. And that means that the mechanized units themselves have to rely on the logistics chain in order to keep their forces moving forward. There's an old saying in the military, and that saying is, amateurs study tactics, professionals study logistics. And so that's, that's certainly applicable to the situation in Ukraine. And so the Ukrainian forces targeting the fuel trucks using their, their shoulder-fired, shoulder-launched rockets and, and missiles that have been supplied to them by NATO or the United States in, in, in vast and increasing numbers, they have found a way to use, I think they've found a way to use those weapons very effectively. And here's, the, here's how it works. You know, if, you have, if you're a soldier, a Ukrainian soldier, whether you're military reserve or if you're a civilian who just wanted to help, because the rockets aren't that hard to figure out how to use their design that way. If you shoot a tank, you take out one tank. If you shoot a fuel truck, you stop a dozen tanks because they can't be resupplied. And once those, those things use fuel very heavily, and so once they run out of gas, they're just stuck. I think, and there's been other, other folks with, with more experience on the ground, uh, especially our, our Army veterans and, and current folks who work in that service, who came to the same conclusion that some of the images which have been verified as authentic of abandoned Russian vehicles, I think they were abandoned because they ran out of fuel. And I think they ran out of fuel because the Ukrainian forces have been effective in targeting the, the supply convoys which come with the, the invasion force, and specifically the fuel trucks in there. Now what that tells me is that the Ukrainian military is not only mounting a, so far a strong resistance, they have a plan. And that it appears so far that their plan is having an impact on the fighting within Ukraine itself. Of course, because of their sheer numbers, the Russian forces have continued to push into Ukraine. They have taken up positions or are trying to take up positions around the major cities, including the capital of Kiev. Were the capital of Kiev to fall to Russian forces, I think it would be a, a devastating blow to Ukraine itself because that is the, the seat of its government. And it's also of symbolic value to the people of Ukraine. I don't think if the capital fell, Ukrainians would stop fighting. But their ability to conduct that fight in an organized and strategic manner would be severely diminished. And so it would cease to be the fall of Kiev, I believe, or excuse me, the fall of Kiev, I think would be a transition away from a full national resistance to a splintered, more of an insurgency in different pockets of the country because the, the leadership capacity would be, would be taken away from the capital. And this appears to be, and, and this appears to be Russia's stated purpose. They want regime change. Um, the claims that they've made that they're, quote, denazifying the country are pure fabrications on the part of the Russian government. They are fictional. It is an absolute falsehood. And to, to propagate that falsehood, hence the term propaganda, the Russian state media and Russian state news agencies have been, have been trying to drown the Internet, to drown the world, if you will, in a tidal wave of absolute falsehoods and fabrications. 24-7, they have rooms and rooms full of people. I call them liars battalions. But they're just rooms and rooms full of folks who are, whose job is to create 
post and disseminate and echo the same false talking points and the same false narrative over and over and over again. So that to the listener, either in Russia or somewhere else, they would search the internet and think, well, there's so much talk about this, it has to be true. But it's not true. There are far-right groups in Ukraine. There are far-right groups in Ukraine that have modern weaponry. That is a true statement. But if you look at the 2019 elections, and I mentioned this yesterday, there's no popular support in Ukraine for these far-right groups. Some of them do call themselves neo-Nazi groups. That's absolutely true. Is it possible that with a flood of weapons coming into Ukraine that some of those groups could get their hands on weapons? It's absolutely a possibility. I don't deny that. But they, these groups do not have popular support. They do not run the government of Kyiv. They do not run the Ukraine's national government. And they, are, they were certainly never planning to execute any type of invasion of Russia. And they're certainly not holding the Ukrainian people hostage, as Vladimir Putin has claimed over and over again. That's an outright falsehood. So you have the president of Russia looking right into the camera and lying to the entire world on a daily basis. Now, whether or not he actually believes what he's saying, I couldn't say. I don't know what's going on inside the mind of another human being, especially one that lives, you know, 6,000 miles away. But the fact is that his statements are false and that folks who continue to believe those are buying into Russian propaganda. And really, I wanted to say it's, it's an oversimplification to call that propaganda because it's actually a, a very sophisticated, what we would call information warfare campaign, which is a narrative that is disseminated across the world through electronic media, including television, radio, and the internet. And they use that as a way to convince people in Russia especially, but also in other places, that their version of events is true and that their version of events is that it justifies the, the military action that the Russian forces have taken in Ukraine. But as the Ukrainian people themselves know, they're not under the control of any Nazi organization. They're not under the control of any far-right group. They know that it's a falsehood. They know it isn't true. And if you want to see very elegant proof of uh, the fact that Putin is wrong about his historical assessment of Ukraine, you look no further than the intensity with which Ukrainian people are fighting back against the Russian invasion. They're, they have come together in a moment of national unity. They have, many of them, who have, have chosen to stay in harm's way in order to fight Russia, where they could have fled to safety, and some have chosen to do that. The refugee, and we'll get to that in a minute, the refugee flow to Poland has been uh, substantial, probably in excess of a million already, and, and more coming in every day because the route from Ukraine to the West is still open. It's not under the control of Russian military forces, and at the moment at least, it's not under, the, under any attack by Russian military forces. Um, and so that, that's actually a good point I wanted to bring up anyway while I'm on. Instead of doing it later, I'll just address it now. There's been some pretty significant changes in attitude in the European Union just in the past week. And, and folks may think, well, isn't that, isn't that an awful short period of time to have a, a significant you know, change in perspective? And, and I would say, well, yes, it is. But think about this. For folks, anyone's, if, hopefully you haven't, but if you have anyone that's ever been in a car accident, a car crash, a car wreck, you know that your entire life can change in an instant. That traumatic event 
can change the, the trajectory of your life permanently. You'll, you'll never go back to being the person you were before you suffered that trauma. Well, an invasion is like thousands of car wrecks being, you know, taking place every day. It's, it's a trauma that's being inflicted on millions, being viewed by billions. And so, but it has the same emotional punch and it can change perspectives, attitudes, and beliefs very quickly so that the people observing these events are no longer who they were before the invasion started. And so far, it appears, we'll, we'll see as time goes on if this change in attitude is permanent. But right now, there is being displayed and exhibited behavior from our European allies that are quite different from what they were uh, the day before Russian forces crossed into Ukraine. Not only has Switzerland taken sides and began to lobby, levy sanctions against Russia. Switzerland, by the way, is historically known for its neutrality, for never getting involved in a conflict. Switzerland has taken sides, and they've taken a, an anti-Russian position in this situation. The French foreign minister said that their goal is to collapse the Russian economy with the, uh, with the economic sanctions that they've been imposed, that have been imposed. The European Union itself has had an emergency meeting and they're drafting plans. We'll see if they can actually do it or not. But they're drafting plans to reduce their dependence on Russian oil by 80%. You know, they get right now somewhere around half of their, their, their gas and, and fuel supplies from Russia. And they're stated, they've stated at least that they're going to try to stop that in a very short period of time. Germany, after 70, almost 80 years of, of, official, of officially having sort of a pacifist position and not taking part um, in, in foreign conflicts, and I know there's some exceptions to that with their, with their troops in NATO and, and that have served in Afghanistan, but they have agreed to greatly increase their defense budget. They have agreed to send weapons to Ukraine, which they previously, previously were not doing. One member of their parliament called the situation a Zeitenwende, which means a change of the times, sort of a change in perspective for the entire nation as to how they view their role in the world and how they view the, the situation between the relations between Europe and Russia. So you've seen a, an astonishing and rapid switch in attitude and opinions from our European allies because there's still a historical memory there's still that there's still the deep cultural impression on folks who live in Europe of the Second World War, and you know on that note, it was the German I think I think it was their their foreign minister who tweeted uh, yesterday that anyone who's believing the the Russian claims that they're fighting Nazis should be ashamed of themselves, and then he added sadly quote we're the experts on on Nazis, and so they're sort of at the same time acknowledging their own past, yet strongly condemning the fictions that Russia is propagating right now. And it's unfortunate there are still people even here in the United States who continue to repeat the same falsehoods being echoed by, by the Russian government, and they still continue to cite these talking points as though they were real. Um, and that shouldn't be too surprising. I mean, we've had folks here who have claimed, and this is a separate topic I don't want to get into, but there's been folks here who have claimed that there was no there was no coronavirus or that the vaccine was really harmful or that it's all some kind of plot and they would refuse to believe uh, the facts of reality. And so the same sort of thing is happening with respect to Russia. Uh, there is no denazification taking place. What's taking place is a full-scale invasion so that Russia can install a puppet government in Kiev 
gain control of their territory and resources and prevent the Ukrainian people from establishing any closer ties to the European Union. And let's remember, that is how this all started. If you go back to 2014 when the maiden protests began, the reason for those was because then President Yanukovych backed out of a deal with the European Union that would have, among other things, it would have provided for closer ties. It would not have made Ukraine a member of the EU or NATO. It would not have done that. But it would have allowed Ukrainians to travel among in the EU without visas. And that's something that was very popular, especially with young people in Ukraine. Because right now, if, you want to, if you're a Ukrainian national, you have to get a visa in order to enter the European Union. Okay, and that visa process is extremely frustrating. It's lengthy. It's cumbersome. It doesn't work very well. And so people are very frustrated with it. And this would have really opened up the doors to a lot of travel and trade amongst you. Because business people in, in the European Union want access to Ukrainian markets. Customers and business people in Ukraine want access to the European Union markets. And, and so at the last minute, Yanukovych backed out of the deal. And he did so because he was ordered to, to do so by Vladimir Putin in Moscow. And you have to understand, Yanukovych is what Russians call Korinizatsiya, which means, the, the term refers to a, a nativization policy, whereby the Russian leadership in Moscow would select a local person in a satellite country like Ukraine, put them make sure that they won the elections, give them Moscow support so that they would be installed as the head of the government there. But in reality, they take their orders from, from Moscow. And that was the case with Yanukovych, who as soon as things turned bad, he fled the country. And where did he go? He went to Russia. You know, how exactly he got there, by the way, is still a matter of uh, interpretation. I think it's quite likely that members of Russia's special forces came to his rescue and, and rescued him and transported him to the safety in Russia. But when he backed out of the trade deal with the EU, the Ukrainian people were furious. And so this, this is what caused the protests to erupt in Kyiv. And, of course, Putin dispatches members of the FSB, which is uh, Russia's state police. It used to be the KGB. They call it the FSB now. He, he's dispatched members of that team to help crush the Ukrainian protests, which he saw as an uprising. So they were sent to crush the, the Ukrainian protests and to stop the protests from happening. When they failed to do so because they underestimated the intensity of the anger of the Ukrainian people against them, then you began to see them make up stories about, oh, it, wasn't, it, was, it can't be the Ukrainian people who are uprising. It's the foreign subversives. It's the United States and the European Union. They're paying Nazis to take over the European to take over Ukraine, which is absurd. And it was, it's not true now, and it never was. But that's the story that they made up. And the reason why that particular narrative resonates so much in Russia, this plays on a, a deep cultural memory that Russia has of the Second World War. The Russians refer to the Second World War as the Great Patriotic War. And it's, and it's an established fact that Russia suffered more casualties in World War II than any other country. The, the exact number will probably never be known. But certainly 20 or 30 million is not an unreasonable figure to put on that. And these were civilian casualties. The German invasion of Russia was absolutely devastating. And that left an indelible mark on the cultural memory 
of the Russian people. So whenever you say there are Nazis coming to the Russian people, that immediately gets their attention. Unfortunately, also during that time, during the Second World War, because the German invasion force came through Ukraine, there, began, there was born the myth of Ukrainian collaboration with the Nazis and Ukrainian betrayal of Russia. Well, if you go back to time just before the Russian invasion, or the, uh, rather the German invasion in World War II, in the 1930s, and that's prior to, to, the, to the Nazi German, Germany's invasion of, of uh, Eastern Europe and Ukraine and later Russia, if you go back to that time, Stalin was even more brutal or just as brutal to the Ukrainian people as the Nazis were. He had a deliberate campaign of starvation which resulted in the deaths of millions of Ukrainians. The secret police would constantly arrest, disappear, torture, and kill people in Ukraine. People in Ukraine lived in fear. So you can sort of understand when the German army came through how the Ukrainians were not necessarily willing to fight on Russia's behalf. If, if, if the German army wanted to destroy the Russians, some Ukrainians, not, not a lot, but some of them just said, oh, you're looking for the Russians. Yeah, they're over here. Uh, because they saw it as an opportunity to get revenge against their enemy. There weren't, there weren't Ukrainians that were walking around wearing swastikas or shouting Sieg Heil uh, or, or were otherwise active supporters of the Nazi government. There was no support for that in Ukraine. But anyway, nevertheless, because the invasion force came through Ukraine, thus was born in Russian history the myth of Ukrainian betrayal and the myth of Nazi collaboration. And to this day, Putin has used that myth as, a, as the basis of his own propaganda. He has tried to use history as a weapon, and he has weaponized the past with his own telling of it, which, by the way, is not true. It's a false version of the past, but it's a false version of the past that is believed by many people in Russia. And one of the reasons it's believed by many people in Russia is, you know, for the past 20 years, Putin has been in charge. And there are over a dozen laws. In fact, there may be several dozen laws. I've only seen about a dozen. But there are over a dozen laws on the books in Russia passed by their Duma, their parliament, and signed by Putin that regulate how history can be taught. And this is something people in the United States should pay attention to because people, excuse me, pieces of the past or portions of the past that were deemed unpatriotic or unflattering or embarrassing were edited out of the history books that Russian students are taught. And remember, the young people now going to war in, in the Russian army and the Russian military grew up under the Putin regime. They grew up in classrooms that were controlled by the Putin regime and who were taught a version of history that the Putin regime wanted them to learn. And this has become its own problem at home in Russia because even though he's using history as a weapon, in a sense, this weapon has also backfired. And here's how that happened. If you listen to the protest movement, and there is a protest movement, by the way, in Russia against the invasion of Ukraine. There is a protest movement in Russia against the invasion of Ukraine. But if you listen to what those people have said, they have repeatedly echoed the same sentiment. We are shocked. We are shocked. How can Russia be the invader? This is not who we are. Well, if you look back over Russia's, you know, thousand-year history, Russia has in fact been the invader many times. But they weren't taught that because that was edited out of their history. 
So because they were taught a falsehood, now they cannot support the reality of who the Putin regime is, because Putin knows very well that Russia has been the invader many times in the past. But he wants to conceal that from his people, and to an extent he succeeded. There are supporters of the invasion of uh, Ukraine and Russia. We should make no mistake about that. There are, and they're becoming more vocal. They believe everything their state media tells them. They disbelieve what their own relatives are telling them in Ukraine, because a lot of people have friends and family there. They disbelieve friends and family who are telling them that there is combat going on. They're being told there is no, there are no battles going on. They aren't allowed to see the images from the Internet or from news that you and I get to see here in the United States. Those are censored. And so you begin to see a very totalitarian style of dictatorship, especially when it comes to the control of information taking place and taking shape in Russia. It's been gradually moving that way for a long time. Russia is not a democracy. It hasn't been for a very long time, and that should be clear. But Putin is now consolidating his power over who gets to speak and who doesn't. Rain TV, which was an independent Russian journalist news organization, was given a choice. Either stop broadcasting, say what we want you to say, or go to jail. And the same, is being, the same ultimatum is being given to Russian citizens. If you call the, if you even refer to the action of, to the invasion of Ukraine as an invasion, you go to jail for 10 to 15 years just for making that statement. And so don't forget, this is the, exactly the same, this is how the gulag started. Political prisoners who spoke out against the state and were arrested and put into jail and later prison camps and later what became the gulag, which, which by the way stands for Glavnoi Upravali Lagari, which just means main camp administration. It's just a system where prisoners are kept. And so a country that has a past of running gulags that is now already arresting and threatening to arrest more people for any dissent against the government should worry everyone. Not just, in, most especially in Russia, but anywhere in the world when you see a government behaving that way. That should scare you. That should concern you. And so that's some of the things that are going on in Russia. It's a divided society. They have supporters. There's a protest movement against it. It's very difficult to determine how many, which percentage of people support which side, which ones are enthusiastic supporters, which ones are opponents. Very difficult to say what that percentage is from the outside. But that also means it's difficult for Putin to tell what that percentage is too. And this is the problem with totalitarian regimes. They appear invincible. They appear to have total control right up until the moment they don't. Right up until the moment that they're toppled. And I know that some some elected leaders here in the United States, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham is one of them who's, who's openly called for the assassination of Putin, which I don't think is likely to happen uh, from, from someone inside Russia or, or from an external source because we don't have the resources in place to do it, first of all. And I don't think that there's a, a, a popular d demand to do something like that uh, in Russia. You know, the Russian people overthrew the czars. The Russian people overthrew the Soviet Union. They're certainly capable of overthrowing the Putin regime. But we don't know what comes next. We don't know if that would make things worse. And we really don't know right now if there's popular interest or a popular sentiment in, in doing something like that. Is there enough popular anger for an uprising? 
I don't think there is right now. But but it's it's really hard to tell what percentage of the people uh, think what in Russia. And so what I'm saying, I guess, today is that there have been sweeping changes. Uh, the, the people of Europe have changed their attitudes and opinions. The people in Russia have changed attitudes and opinions. Ukrainians have, have stood up and, and condemned the Russian invasion and fought against it with a, an intensity that really nobody expected. And so in a very short amount of time, the world has changed. And no matter what the outcome is in Ukraine, it's likely that those changes will continue, at least in the short term. If Russia prevails and establishes a new regime in Ukraine, then we will officially and probably for the foreseeable future be in Cold War Part 2. If the Ukrainians prevail and defeat the Russian invaders on the battlefield, that will likely echo long and wide, far and wide within Russia. We should remember, one of the things that led to the downfall of the Tsars was a disastrous foreign military adventure because Russia's participation in World War I did end in military disaster on top of severe economic inequality and problems at home, which the new sanctions that have been put in place are absolutely capable of delivering. So those same variables are coming to, could be coming together again. You know, history may not repeat itself, but like Mark Twain says, it rhymes. And so it's possible, I'm not saying likely, but it's possible that a Ukrainian victory could resonate far and wide enough in Russia as to lead to regime instability there. And the third outcome, that there's a, a stalemate that neither force is able to defeat the other, neither force is able to effectively control all of Ukraine, would mean that the conflict in terms of, of actual fighting would, would continue for some time. And with an active war zone going on on Europe's doorstep, with changing attitudes, with flowing weapons and fighters, and a Russia that's likely to get more and more interested, I won't use the word desperate because that's, that's uh, judgmental, but more and more interested in, in bringing things to a close and, and willing to intensify combat operations, then the stalemate option is one that would bring the most likelihood of, of direct conflict between NATO and the U.S. and Russia to, to directly go to war. Russia may decide in a stalemate situation, we're tired of these weapons and fighters coming through Poland. Poland is allowing these people to come in, either stop it or we're going to attack Poland. And at that point, an attack on Poland would trigger Article 5, which says that an attack on one NATO member is an attack on all, and there would be an open shooting war between Russia on one side and the United States and NATO on the other. So regardless of which one of those three scenarios plays out, the consequences will be far-reaching and, I think, lasting uh, in terms of global politics, in terms of global security, in terms of how people's attitudes, perceptions, and beliefs about the world they live in are held in Europe, in the United States, in Russia, in Asia. Uh, so the consequences will be uh, far-lasting and far-reaching. Right now, I don't think it's really possible to say with any certainty which one of those three outcomes is most likely. Combat's only been going on for a little over you know, a week, and in that time, there have been enormous changes. I think it's entirely possible that there could be 
changes of an equal magnitude in some other direction that happen in the next week. So to say that uh, Ukraine is winning or to say that Russia is winning or to say that nobody's winning in terms of the military campaign right now, it's really just too soon to tell. What is certain is that Ukraine is still very much in this fight. They have not been defeated. Russia has not achieved a military victory in Ukraine. And so it's likely that the fighting will intensify as they seek to achieve that objective they will bring more firepower, and they're already starting to do this. You know, the, the Air Force last, the Russian Air Force in the last week, wasn't as active as we would have expected it to be, even by the Russian military's own doctrine. And and now in the last few days, we've started to see that pick up as they increase the bombardment of Russia's largest, uh, of Ukraine rather's largest cities. And this is something we've seen the Russian military do in other places, most specifically in Grozny in Chechnya. If they couldn't conquer it and, and take control of it, then they'd simply surround it, cut it off, and just bomb it to rubble. And that is very much a possibility for Kiev. And so as that goes on, that will increase the pressure. As the humanitarian casualties mount and the destruction increases, that will increase the pressure on both European and American decision makers to intervene directly militarily. We don't have the assets in place to do that right now. But as time goes on and as forces are repositioned, we may in fact have assets in place to do this. So it's a very dangerous time. It's a very dangerous world. It's a more dangerous world than it was before the Russian invasion. And for those who would argue that this is all the fault of NATO and the United States, um, I would say I completely disagree with that assessment. This is mostly the fault of the Russian government. Russia is, a, is its own country. Its decision makers are capable of thinking and acting on their own. They are not simply agents of our policies. Not everything they do is just in response to the United States or NATO. I think that's a gross oversimplification. I completely acknowledge that the United States and the European Union have made mistakes, pretty significant mistakes actually, in how they handled relations with Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, which we can, we'll do a separate show on that. There's no question about it. But they are not response. That does not make us responsible for a full-scale Russian ground invasion of Ukraine. That responsibility rests entirely with the Russian government. And since the Russian government is more or less run by one man, it is the responsibility of Vladimir Putin. And he owns the consequences of this action. Whatever those, Whatever this outcome is going to be, it's his fault, and we need to remember that. And I hope that here in the United States during an election year, people will remember that it's, it's not the Democrats' fault. It's not the Republicans' fault. It's Vladimir Putin's fault. So whatever other else our disagreements will be, and we're going to have them, and that's fine. We're supposed to have that. We should actually be thankful that we still have the ability to conduct free and fair elections where people with an opposition's voice actually still have authority and still have the ability to make decisions. That's not the case in Russia. There is no opposition. There is no opposition party. There is no opposition power. There's the rule of one person, and that, by definition, is a dictatorship. So that, I think, is the situation as I see it today. I thank everybody for listening. We'll do more updates as we go on, and I hope everybody has a great day.